You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 17, this will be the last of the three messages on the Abrahamic covenant. We've looked at chapter 12, where we saw the covenant promises first extended. Chapter 15, where the covenant is formally cut. And now, chapter 17 of Genesis, we will see the covenant sign given. Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall you be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. 
Holy Father, forgive us whenever we laugh. Forgive us our unbelief. Forgive us when our faith wavers. Whenever our covenant faithfulness fails, though yours never does. And Father, seeing your covenant grace more clearly, more fully, more truly this morning, may our hearts be drawn to be more faithful to you in covenant. And give us grace to do so, to walk before you and be blameless. In Jesus' name we ask this, amen. Whenever the covenant was cut with Abraham in chapter 15, God walked it alone. You remember God came to Abraham, instructed him to bring him several animals. Abraham cut the pieces and laid them opposite one another. And then manifested something like a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. God walks between the pieces, as it were. And normally what would be signified in this whenever a covenant was made would be the covenant oath and binding of both parties involved, walking through, pledging loyalty to one another in covenant, and calling a curse upon themselves as demonstrated in the rent carcasses should they fail to keep that covenant. So it was that a covenant would be cut. But God walked it alone. The covenant is assured it will be. In Genesis 12, Abraham walks, journeying from Haran to the land God said he would show him. In chapter 17, Abraham walks. He walks before God, keeping covenant, circumcising those of his household. But it is in chapter 15 where God walks it alone, where Abraham has nothing but the covenant promises themselves, nothing but the covenant word. It's there that we're told he believed Yahweh. And Yahweh counted it to him as righteousness. And Paul makes a big deal out of this order. It's not in chapter 12 where Abraham walks that we're told that Abraham was counted righteous. It's not in chapter 17 where Abraham walks that we're told that he's counted righteous. It's in chapter 15 where he has nothing but the word and faith in that word. And so Paul says that Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who would believe without being circumcised, so that, the, so that righteousness would be counted, counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now the order, order and the emphasis of Romans 4 and Genesis 12, 15, and 17 is critical as we go through our text to rightly understand it. When we first saw Abram walk, he was 75 years old. And we're told that Sarah was barren. Prior to the flood, we see men bearing children much later in life, but they lived much longer then too. And so as we survey Genesis 11 and all the generations of of Seth leading up to Abraham, they all bore their first child prior to 35, except for Abram's father, Terah, who bore his first child at 70. But Abraham then, whenever he was called, is already five years older than his father was. And then it's some years later that Abraham, we found him lamenting before God that Eliezer, his slave, would be his heir. And God replied, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir, Genesis 15.3. He was 86 whenever Sarai 
told them, Behold, now Yahweh has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And so it was that Ishmael conceived. It was conceived by Hagar. Abram is now 99 years old. 13 years since Ishmael. 25 years he sojourned in the land of promise. And here God tells him that all your, all your efforts to help my covenant plans along mean nothing. Nothing is to come of all your self-effort to help me in this. There is a doing that God will call for Abraham to do here, but it is not the doing that he has done. Abraham and Sarai's actions in chapter 16 display unbelief. There's obviously faith mingled in with that. They're believing the covenant promises, but they're believing that they need to help them along in some way. But, but what's critical is, is the acts themselves display unbelief. There's faith mingled in it, but the act displays unbelief. It works contrary to the very covenant that they think they're helping along. And so what you see in chapter 17 is what does covenant faithfulness look like? Chapter 16 gives the picture of, of how we often try to act in covenant faithfulness towards God and helping Him along. What does true covenant faithfulness look like? And if you've seen anything of the blessedness of God's covenant promises to us, if you've gotten anything of that as we've surveyed His covenant so far, then your heart should be longing, oh, my God has been so covenantally faithful to me. What does covenant faithfulness on my part to Him look like? And so here you get that picture in contrast to what our covenant faithfulness too often looks like. as portrayed in chapter 16. God comes to Abram. And he opens declaring, I am God Almighty. Whereas in previous chapters, the covenant name of God, Yahweh, all caps Lord in most of your translations, the covenant name of Yahweh, of God, Yahweh, dominates. And this one, it's only used what? once and only by the narrator. Abraham, uh, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. While Abram knew the name of God, that's clear. The meaning of that name was not something that was unfolded to Abram. It wasn't clear to him. But this title, God Almighty, El Shaddai, is something that we learn was clear to him and the patriarchs. Exodus 6.3 I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, by my name Yahweh... I did not make myself known to them. And what's peculiar is that as we look at the Scriptures, Yahweh's, the name Yahweh is, is abundantly made clear to us throughout the Pentateuch. We, we can see what that name means. And the name El Shaddai, which we have translated most often as God Almighty or just Shaddai, the Almighty, is a bit obscure. We don't really know with great clarity what's communicated by that. How is it that God made Himself known to the patriarchs as God Almighty? And there are a couple other texts that I think are, are telling. When Isaac was sent to his kindred to take a wife, he blessed him saying, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. Genesis 28.3 When God appeared to Jacob at Bethel, He did so, saying, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. Genesis 35.11 In both instances, following that specific title, the covenant promise of God is laid forward. And specifically concerning fruitfulness. As one surveys the use of Shaddai throughout Scripture, the idea of power is often there. Hence the translation Almighty. 
The idea of power is often there, but as regards the patriarch specifically, that power is being spoken of in fulfilling his promises, specifically the promises of fruitfulness and blessing. And then God Almighty calls on Abram to walk before him and be blameless. This is what covenant faithfulness is. It's walking before God and being blameless. What does that mean? David, in rehearsing the covenant God made with him to his son Solomon, said, this is what Yahweh said to me. If your sons pay close attention to their way, their walk of life, if they pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel, 2 Kings 2.4. Walking before God in faithfulness, being blameless before God, involves the heart. It's not something that mere action will suffice. Walking before Yahweh has to penetrate all the way down. It involves living karam deo, before the face of God. Living before Him as your covenant Lord, knowing His gaze is upon you and your desire to be, not for craven fear, but for love and covenant faithfulness back unto Him to live in faithfulness. God would appear to Solomon after the completion of the temple and explain, as for you, if you walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart, And uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. According to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules. Too often, I'm afraid that we want to approach covenant faithfulness with God in the same way that we we try to do covenant faithfulness to our spouse. We try to do it on the sentimental plane. And we try to, we, we want our own actions. Well, I wanted to do this for you. And so because I wanted to do this for you, I want you to feel loved because it's what I wanted to do. Instead, of coming to God and simply obeying His commands as He's outlined for us. We want Him to be impressed by things that we've made up, by our own acts of covenant faithfulness. Why is Abraham to keep covenant? That. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Genesis 17, 2. You feel the, t- the tension that, that that introduces into this whole narrative of God's covenant dealings with Abraham. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you. In Genesis 15, God walks it alone. The covenant is assured. And here... God is telling Abraham, walk that I may establish my covenant. Christian standard, New American standard, both try to avoid the tension by just eliminating it. Christian standard version. Live in my presence and be blameless, present, period, excuse me. Live in my presence and be blameless, period. I will set up my covenant between me and you. New American standard even. Walk before me and be blameless, period. I will establish my covenant between me and you. But the legacy standard version, English standard version, others are correct. There is this idea of consequence here in the text. And that the tension is real, that that's the proper interpretation, I think is plain by verses 9 and 14. God said to Abram, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. Verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not uncircumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Keeping covenant, 
We'll see. It'll be more and more clear as we go along. In this text means circumcision. And the person who is not circumcised has broken covenant and is cut off. And he's calling for Abraham to keep covenant that God may establish covenant. The tension that you feel may come in the form of a question. Is the Abrahamic covenant conditional or unconditional? And as we've reflected on these three critical texts concerning the Abrahamic covenant, I believe the answer is a clear yes. Is it conditional or unconditional? The problem is this is a man-made label. And, and as far as just looking at things in and of themselves, is that conditional or unconditional? That's fine. But as a man-made label, we've wanted to absolutize them in describing a covenant. As if they can go into these man-made categories of conditional or unconditional. That's nowhere in the text. We, we push that. We don't read that out of the text. We force that kind of absolutizing onto the text. Let's look at, what, at the covenant itself as it's just set forward here. Where the ESV succeeds in verse 1 by carrying on what other translations omit. Walk before me and be blameless that. Where it succeeds there, it fails at something in verse 4 that New American Standard gets. The ESV omits the words, as for me. So verse 3, God said to him, verse 4, as for me, behold my covenant. And so when you see that, you now can have, did you notice this? There are four instances in this text where that phrase comes up. As for, as for me, verse 4, God. As for God, as for you, Abraham, verse 9. As for Sarai, verse 15. As for Ishmael, verse 20. See, all of God's covenants, all of them, hold out not only promises to those God enters into covenant with, they put obligations on those who are in that covenant. And never are those obligations ignored, cast aside, discarded, treated lightly without consequence. How do we rectify this tension. We need to look at these as for sections and look, understand how God speaks in one of them in relation to the other. And we'll see that, but suffice it for now to recognize this, that the old divines were far wiser when instead of saying something like once saved, always saved, they spoke of the preservation of and the perseverance of the saints. The saints persevere because God preserves. Justification is an act of grace. It comes to us not because of anything we do, but because of God's mercy towards us in Christ. But, as the Reformers would say, we're justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. In Christ, we're justified. And everyone's justified who is justified. Their glorification is absolutely certain. But also certain is the road of sanctification that leads from one destination to the other. And it's the only road that there is. Hebrews twelve fourteen. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness. So strive is the, is the verb that carries on with both of these. Strive for peace and strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There is a holiness or as the, ES, uh, the New American Standard perhaps better translates, get, helps you from misunderstanding something there. There is a sanctification without which no one will see the Lord, which you are to strive for. Now, this is not about perfection. It's about perseverance. The saint's walk is a stumbling walk. 
We have seen Abraham stumble multiple times already. We see him stumble in this very text. You can go on reading the story to see him stumble again and again, but he keeps walking. God will lose none who place their faith in him. But because he keeps them, none who place their faith in him will lose their God. They keep holding on in faith to Him and Him alone. And how none of this compromises God walking it alone. I trust it will be plain as we go along, and especially when we come to near the end and we see the inclusion of the most unlikely of characters in this narrative. But that this condition, walk before me and be blameless, that does not work contrary to the unconditional aspects that are involved in this covenant, that that so is made clear by God's part in it. As for me, behold, my covenant is, not could be, not would be, not shall be or will be, If it simply is, behold, my covenant is. And because it is, we have these shall be's and will be's. Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. And the certainty of this is heightened and that Abram is now renamed Abraham. Abram means exalted father. His name had to be something of a joke to many. Exalted father? It's like the bald man named Curly. Or a lineman named Tiny. Exalted father. And the irony is heightened even more. Oh, the humor of our God. No longer Abram, exalted father, but Abraham. It's a play on words. The two words that you have translated in verse 5 as father and multitude. Abram, meaning father of a multitude. And, And not just a multitude of people, a multitude of nations. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. The explanation of his name in verse 5. I, for, your name shall be Abraham, for I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. And the surety of this covenant stretches beyond Abraham to involve a seed. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. God will establish it and it will be perpetual, it will be territorial, it will be Relational, it'll be perpetual. It is an everlasting covenant, he says. Verse 7. It is relational. Again, verse 7. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. Or verse 8. I will be their God. And it's territorial. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. God says this covenant is, and because it is, it will be, and it shall be so. It's certain. And yet, as for Abraham, he and his seed after him are to keep covenant. Verse 9. You shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. What does it mean to keep covenant? Well, it involves walking before God and being blameless. Yes, but, but specifically, what does that mean? We saw it means this wholehearted obedience to God's covenant words. But a specific command is in view here. Verse 10, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Keeping covenant faithfully means receiving and keeping God's covenant sign as he gives it to his people. Circumcision is a sign of the covenant. Verse 11, it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Verse 13, so shall my covenant be in your flesh. The sign stands for the covenant itself. So shall my covenant be in your flesh. 
what is circumcision a sign of? Yes, it's a sign of the covenant, but how does it signify? How does it speak to the covenant specifically? First, I think the context makes clear how this relates to Abraham's seed, to his offspring. And that takes us back to the promise that that you're longing to look for as you pick up Genesis in the first place and begin to see how God works covenantally. You're looking for the promised seed of the woman. Second, correlating to Abraham's name change, his being called out of Ur of the Chaldees where he and his forefathers had worshipped foreign gods to be called into covenant relation with God. This name change, this, this act of circumcision signifies the removal of the flesh. Abraham and his offspring are to be this visual illustration to the world of the difference between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. While circumcision is an extremely physical act, it's to signify a spiritual reality. God speaks to His people in Deuteronomy 10.16. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For reasons we don't know, they're not really clear. Those who wandered in the wilderness, that generation, they were not circumcised. And whenever Joshua has them circumcised in obedience to God's explicit command before they go into the promised land... Well, after he's obeyed that command, Yahweh speaks to him saying, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the sequence is, God says, Joshua, circumcise him. Joshua does it, and then Yahweh says, I have rolled away. So the sign is something Joshua does, but the thing signified is something God says, I have done. It's God who removes the flesh. And so he tells his people in Deuteronomy 30 and 6, Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Does that begin to help something of the tension dissolve in your mind? God tells Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. That I may establish my covenant between between us. And the covenant involves circumcision. And circumcision speaks to something God does. And the doing God does is a work in the heart so that we love Him and His ways and His truth. Behind their covenant keeping is God's covenant keeping. Augustine said that a sacrament, like circumcision, supper, baptism, a sacrament is a visible sign of an invisible grace. The visible sign is something Abraham can do. The thing signified thereby is something only God can do. Circumcision was something Joshua could do. But the thing signified by it was only something God could do. And then third, circumcision not only signifies the removal of the flesh, it also speaks to the imputation of righteousness. This is not an inference like working inversely. The flesh is removed and righteousness is imputed. This is something Paul explicitly states whenever he said... He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith when, while he was still uncircumcised, Romans 4, 11. This should make plain to us that the sign of circumcision was one that had to be received by faith, a faith that already preceded it. And receive the thing being signified therein. Covenant cannot be kept by mere circumcision. Now who is to be circumcised? That is to involve every male of the household. Abraham's household is made plain in verses 10 through 13. 
as is the covenant headship of Abraham and all the fathers in perpetual generations. You see how, how circumcision is understood in relation to the head of household. Everyone in the household, everyone, every slave that's bought, every child that's born, how circumcision, circumcision was to be understood and obedience to it was spoken of in reference to the father. When are they to be circumcised? Slaves when bought, those born when eight days old, verse 12. This distinguishes God's covenant circumcision from that of the nations around them where it would relate to puberty or purity, ritualistic purity. Any male who is not circumcised, verse 14, is broken covenant is to be cut off. Remember, covenants are cut. And to not be cut means to be cut off. John Currid comments, Circumcision is a two-edged sword. It either cuts one into the covenant or it cuts one out of the covenant. Now, following this as for Abraham section, you have an as for Sarai. And like Abraham, her name is changed. Her name really means the same thing, princess in both cases. But unlike Abraham, in this chapter that's emphasizing man's covenant faithfulness to his covenant Lord, unlike that section with Abraham, this section with Sarai doesn't speak to any kind of obligations on her part at all. It comes back to God again and what He promises. Verse 16, I will, I will, I will is the dominant note of this as for Sarai section. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And consider the uniqueness of Sarah in this. How often do you see God speaking of His covenant promises directly to a woman in Scripture? This is it. She's also the only woman whose age at death is recorded. Genesis 23.1 She's significant here. Attention is being... There's a spotlight being cast on Sarah here. Abraham is the father of Israel, but Sarah is her mother. And the mother of, of what is to be the people of God. There's no possible way you can think of her conceiving. If she's to conceive, it will be as though God speaks into the void and brings something out of nothing. You see the story God is telling here. You're hoping for the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And in the face of this promise and the presence of God Almighty... Abram, Abraham now displays both reverence and irreverence. He bows again and he laughs. And to himself he says, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? Now the bow is open. But the thought is to himself. But you cannot to yourself before God. You cannot to yourself before God. Abraham, the man of faith, laughs in unbelief. Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? We're too quick to laugh. At Abraham's laughing. To shake our head at disbelief and his unbelief. You see, right on the hills of, of his laughter, he offers up again his plan. What, what about my plan? Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. You see what he just asked? Live, walk before you. That Ishmael might be part of the covenant, walking before you. We laugh at Abraham. But when you're evangelizing your friends, your children, do you begin to think as though it depended upon you? Your wisdom, your initiative. I've got this new method. 
Do you think it depends upon your charisma, your forcefulness, your closing the deal? Do you think God needs you in causing the new birth of spiritually dead souls? Do you behave as though God's covenant purpose is really hinged on you, yourself? Or is it simply that you recognize He invites me to participate in this in faithfulness? What's required of me is simply to do what He has said and I can trust Him. God's answer to Abraham's plea for Ishmael is no. His answer to those other two questions is yes. And God now has a laugh of sorts. It's a fatherly kind of laugh. The kind of laugh that brings both conviction and comfort. No. No, I won't. And I still love you. It's the kind of laugh that says you're wrong. You're wrong, but I love you. Sarah will bear a child and his name will be He Laughs. It's the meaning of Isaac. Through Sarah, the covenant seed will come and his name will be He Laughs. All of God's covenant purposes hinge on this child being born from one that you cannot conceive of conception happening in her womb. And that singular seed is to be, as it were, the the head of the people of God, of this new humanity and hope of all God's offspring coming from this one miraculously born child. Do you see God would say no to your plans? Why would say no to Abraham's plans? Praise God that whenever we try to lift up ourselves in our folly, God says, no, I'm going to exalt Christ instead. The seed who you could not conceive of me bringing forth from such a barren place. No to your silly folly of thinking you need to help me along in my covenant purposes. I will give you Christ. And because I give you Christ, covenant faithfulness, true covenant faithfulness, will proceed from a new heart. Not these self-efforts but because of the work I've done in you. Abram has just been called to walk before God and keep covenant. And then he laughs at the very covenant promises held forth to him. Abraham fails. God does not. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Verse 19. Oh, what grace there is in our God that whenever we sin, that when we disbelieve, whenever we fail in covenant faithfulness, he laughs back at us, as it were. When we laugh at His promises, He laughs back. Not a laugh that treats our sin as light, but a laugh that brings conviction and comfort. And He answers no to our self-efforts. And yes to His omnipotent salvation to come in the promised seed. But God does hear Abraham's plea for the one whose name means God hears. Ishmael, God hears. As for Ishmael, he'll be blessed in a limited way. But again, he has no part in the covenant. And once God finishes, immediately and exactly, Abraham obeys. And he has every member of his household circumcised. Every member. Meaning, it includes Ishmael. Ishmael participates in the covenant. He receives the covenant sign. And yet, he doesn't participate in the covenant. He does not have the thing signified thereby. At the very beginning of what is to be the nation of Israel, 
you have Ishmael standing forth, testifying that not all who receive the covenant sign have that which is signified thereby. Some will only ever enjoy the shadows, never tasting of the fullness that is to be had only in Christ. I trust this makes clear something that I've said earlier in the series. It's something that distinguishes Baptist covenant theology from that of our dear and beloved Presbyterian brothers. And that is that while the Abrahamic covenant ministers the new covenant, it is not identical altogether to the new covenant. There are persons that have a part in the Abrahamic covenant, that have no part in the new covenant. And there are persons that are part of the new covenant, that have no part in the limited, shadowy kind of promises that many who were in the Abrahamic covenant partook of. They don't have any inheritance, possession, any rights, any title to any kind of land or dirt in Palestine. The Abrahamic covenant is broader than the new covenant. It involves persons who are not part of the new covenant. And the new covenant is fuller than the Abrahamic covenant. It brings fullness to everything that's signified in shadows and types therein. There are persons who participate in the Abrahamic covenant, receiving the sign, and in a limited way enjoying some of its promises and blessings that have no part in the new covenant. And there are persons who have no part in those shadowy promises and rights involved with the Abrahamic covenant who enjoy all the fullness of everything's promised to Abraham. There is a circumcision without which circumcision meant nothing. Paul explains in Romans 2, for circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no Jew who is merely one outwardly, for no Jew, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The circumcision, the only circumcision, Jesus is speaking to the Jew, the only circumcision that was of any value is one that was accompanied by covenant faithfulness to God's covenant words. And that covenant, that that covenant faithfulness to His words is a result of what circumcision signified. A work of God alone on the heart to make it new. God's covenant faithfulness ensures ours. If God did not circumcise the heart, circumcision of the flesh meant nothing. If God has not buried you and raised you in Christ, your baptism means nothing. Your baptism is not baptism at all. You just got wet. You may have the sign, but you have nothing of that which it signifies. And if you have nothing, if you don't have that thing which it signifies, the sign means nothing. It's empty, null, and void. And the indication that your baptism means nothing is if it's not accompanied by walking before God. It's a stumbling walk. But it is a walking before Him. A walk that's born out of a new heart. 
that longs to live in faithfulness to the God who is unfailingly faithful to His covenant promises. I pray that none of you are Ishmael's without any, any part in the new covenant. I pray that none of you are Ishmael's. You just have a sign. It's all outward, but there's nothing inside that works its way out. I pray that you are all Isaac's, that the sign of baptism signifies the reality that you died with Christ, that you've risen to newness of life, that you're putting off the old man, that you're putting on the new. And our only hope that that is true of us, our only hope is that Christ walked it alone. For 30 years, He walked it alone, living in obedience to God's law, to be our righteousness. He walked to the cross alone to bear the wrath of the Almighty for our sins. He walked out of the tomb alone, conquering death and Satan. Jesus Christ walked it alone. And because He walked, we can walk. Because we were buried with Him and now we've risen to newness of life. Because He died and rose, we can walk. And we may be then baptized. Because He circumcised your heart, you love and you believe and you trust. Because of His covenant faithfulness, you can keep covenant. There's no tension between these. His covenant faithfulness ensures ours. Christ's death and resurrection is ours. And so though we walk, we walk in covenant faithfulness, giving all glory and honor and praise to God, saying our every step is only because Christ walked it alone where we never could. Sinner, Leave aside everything of self-effort. Don't trust in any covenant sign in and of itself. You need what's signified in there. You need to die and be risen with Christ. You need to partake in communion of Christ broken and His blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. You need to bank on Jesus walking it alone to be your righteousness, to die for your sins and to rise conquering death in the grave and ascend as Lord and fall at His feet. Bow without any laughter. Bow with faith, trusting that He walked it alone. And then, then you may walk. Let's pray. Holy Father, Strengthen the faith of your saints and save sinners now by your Spirit, through your preached Word. May our voices be lifted up as an act of covenant faithfulness to render all praise to you. And may we walk forward from this place, walking before you. Walking knowing that your gaze is directed on us and may it not cause us to want to hide or flee as Adam did when he broke covenant. May it cause us to walk in a way that gives you honor and glory, depending upon you for every step, because we know you walked it alone. In the strong name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.